the winter. Hello and welcome to What We Do in the Winter. This is the 75th episode in the series of podcasts from the Isles of Mull, Iona, Olva, Gometra, Erid and Little Colonsey. I'm Alistair Satchel. I live outside of Dervig in the north of Mull and I'll be your host today. Hello to you. I hope this finds you happy and well wherever and whenever you happen to be. If you're listening to the episode as it goes out, a very Merry Christmas to you. This episode is a conversation with Banjo and Roe Beale. Banjo and Roe originally hail from Australia, but have settled just outside of Tobermory. Roe is one of the masterminds behind the distillery at Isle of Mull Cheese, and Banjo is a celebrated interior designer, whose work you may have seen on Interior Design Masters, his own series, Designing the Hebrides, and whose book, Wild Isle Style, is available from all good bookshops. For those of you coming to the podcast for the first time, I think it's worth giving you a bit of context to the project. For those of you who've heard this before, I do apologise. What We Do in the Winter is a podcast and film series which looks to amplify the voices of the people of the islands around Mull. We have a population of just under 3,000 people here, but each year, easily half a million visitors come to our shores. Each of those visitors tells stories of the times they've had in the islands and the experiences they've had. That is vital. People need to have holidays and dreams of wonderful places. But that voice dominates how our communities are seen in our collective narrative and in the media. It tends to render us down into the supporting cast of a film where the holiday maker, the otter or the sea eagle is the star. This project is an attempt to redress the balance of stories by celebrating the voices of the people of our islands, showing that we are real people in a real place with real lives and real concerns, full of stories, tales and adventures. It's a way of making connections with people all over the world and sharing stories that draw us together whilst highlighting the real lives of the people of our islands. I'll be back with a wee bit more at the end of the episode, including details on how to donate to the cause that Ro and Banjo mentioned from Nepal. Now, with the greatest of pleasure, I'm delighted to hand you over to Banjo and Ro. Who are you? <laughs> who are you, Ro? I don't, I don't even know who I am. <laughs> no, I'm Ro, Ro Beale, um, Banjo's partner. We're not technically married, though, but you just say that. I have to say that for my mum because my mum thinks we've secretly gotten married and we got engaged like seven years ago now and Ro has just taken on my name, but we're not officially married, although we'd love to be married, but we just never got around to it. Well, every time... Well, now we, we don't even bother, but what we used to do is save for a wedding, start planning for the wedding, yeah. and then look at our bank account and go on a holiday instead. Yeah. yeah, we'd just go away for... We'd be like, oh, let's just go away. So we go yeah. away for two months and spend all the wedding money. And I feel like weddings are... Yeah. Fun. Weddings. Wedding. Oh, yeah. 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 Oh, we, we would schlep. It'll be like schlepping <laughs> through can India. Make, we're or backpackers at heart. We can yeah. make that stretch a long way. Weddings are for other people. So I think we're just so selfish. We think, oh, we'd rather go on a trip. Oh, and it doesn't, like, what, I don't know, like, everyone's different. I, I can appreciate that people enjoy that big special day and what that means, but I think, I don't know, if you just love someone, like, that's enough. And it's yeah. nice to have that celebration of love, but even if I did, or even if we did, you know, I always thought I'd have lots of people there, but actually, no, I would just have, like, the key people in my life. 
I'm not having that auntie that I don't know. Like, yeah. why is she? Why am I feeding that person? Why am I? Yeah, yeah, like I just wouldn't. I just want to do it. So I think if we get married, it'll just be a bunch of pals, really, and probably not like a destination wedding, but we'd just go somewhere and yeah, have a good time together. Yeah, yeah. The cruel thing is, we fought so long for gay marriage equality and then it came along and we thought mm, actually We're i don't know if that is any good <laughs> what were we fighting for yeah but, uh, for a lot of things yeah 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 but um, well, equality equality it's, yeah yeah but we're fine to have the right to have the choice to get married that's all yeah, yeah we want you to be told you can't well, I think it was just offensive yeah doesn't mean we have to yeah, I know. I'm not, no, okay, yeah, no, we won't even get into that. Anyway, but yeah. you're more than just my partner. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, and who are you? <clears throat> who am I? Gosh, well, um, Banjo, that's not my real name, though. Oh. Um, it's Brendan, that's uh, what I was born. Uh, but Ro here, um, it all started when I met Ro, and he didn't fancy that name because he had a boss with the same name. But that's because... No, because that's when I met you, You were, everyone used to call you Bob. I had another nickname, Bob. And everyone was, used to call him Bob. That's a long story. It was my boss at the time, had the same name as you. Yeah. And that particular boss was a nice person, but was quite an old man. And so I was just like, I, can't, I, can't, like, I cannot call you that. In the bed, like, you know. <laughs> oh, right, don't. But that was like, no. That, that was where that was really, for me, came from. I'm like, not a chance. Because um, it just, no. And then... So I anyway, get, we so had some choices. Ugh, turns out I'm highly strung, so banjo was it. Uh -huh. So, um, but um, after the Australian poet, yeah, banjo uh -huh. Patterson. But I think as well, at kind of when we arrived here, um, there was another Brendan on the farm as well. Yeah. So, um, banjo, banjo was it because Ro and I, we had only when we arrived here. I don't know seven or eight years ago, the first time Ro and I had embarked on a kind of backpacking um, trip out of Australia, but we booked that only two months after we met. Wow. Um, so yeah. we met, we decided we wanted to travel. We went backpacking and then moving or landing here was the first time Ro and I lived together. So it was kind of quite, that's quite a strange thing I thought because we when we first arrived here we were still kind of getting to know each other mm. um, but introduced to this place as a couple yeah so we've always been the boys when we first landed here yeah. we we're just yeah. the boys up at Scabrua but yeah it was the first time we yeah actually lived together yeah. and how did you meet oh we met in a pub in Brunswick in Melbourne <laughs> can, um, can you remember the name of the pub a Cornish Arms. And he only knows that because I asked him the other day. Yeah. Because he can never remember the name I of the I can't God. quite remember it. But it was a bit of one of those moments where kind of time stood still. And, I mean, it might have been a lot of beers, but we were both there to see a mutual friend play in a band. Oh. And at the end of the night, it was just 3 a.m. and it was closing time and we were the only two left in the room. And my friend was patiently waiting in the corner for me, um, just lovingly looking at us because she could tell. And so it was lovely. But then Ro gave me the wrong number and I never heard from him. By accident. Mm. By, I'd, yeah, I'd never... Three o'clock in the morning after a few paints. <clears throat> yeah. No, I knew it was all the correct numbers, just the, in, not in the right not order. Not necessarily in the right order. Yeah. <laughs> Leading up to that, like, I was quite heartbroken from a previous relationship and so I was like oh I'll just never date again like fine done and so when I did give 
banned my number. It was really out on a limb. Like it was the first time I'd ever in years given my number out. But I didn't know I gave it wrong. And so the next day at work, I'm like, oh yeah, he'll text for sure. And then like nothing. And then like the next day I'm like, you know, like maybe he's trying to play it cool. Didn't hear anything. So then I started to get really like pissed off. I was like, how, like, how did, I went out on a limb, gave you my number and then heard nothing back. And so I was complaining quite a lot about this at work. And one of my colleagues was just like, oh, can you just shut up? And I'm like, what? And he's like, can you get his number? And I'm like, well, maybe like through a friend of a friend of a friend. And he's like, well, just get his number and call him. And I'm like, oh, yeah, okay, well, that's also an option. Um, so I messaged him, I'm like, hey, I thought we had a real connection the other night. Like, so in my mind, I was like, if you're gonna blow me off, do it to my face. Like, be a man about it. Like, so I was like, hey, what's up? I thought, you know, that was, had a good night. And then Ben just replied, why did you give me the wrong number? Question mark, question mark, question mark. <laughs> I didn't put three question marks. three question marks. Mark. I was just remember like, oh, like, ooh, <laughs> okay, it was me. Anyway, <clears throat> the rest is history, as they say. So where did you both start life? Where were where were where were you born? What was your were you always Antipodean to this part of the world or? Well, we were both um, born in the bush in Australia in separate towns. I was in New South Wales. Roe was in Victoria, both yeah. in really small kind of places. Um, not much going on, even less going on where you were born. Mining or farming or? Uh, Mine was farming. Farming. Yeah. Ours was. Um, I mean, yeah, a bit of farming, gold mining, that kind of yeah, thing. Yeah, it was an old gold, old Russia gold mining area. town. So we both probably had very similar upbringings and doing Christmas in tin sheds and eating prawns, even though on retrospect they came from, you know, 500 miles away. Yeah. Um, so I don't know how, how good those prawns would have been. But was a cold Christmas. Like, no one would, like... You cold just, food. Yeah, cold food. Yeah, like salads, cold meats, seafood. Like yeah. no one wanted to be in in the kitchen in that heat, like the summer heat in Australia. Yeah. And I, I, I miss, I do miss that Yeah, a little bit. I don't because you promised snow in the brochures, but, you know, it was just hot and sticky, wasn't it? Australian Christmases. Um, yeah, but then you went swimming in the pool, you went swimming in the river, you went down to the beach. When you lived in Queensland, it was like Christmas Day. Yeah. On the beach. No, it was right. backyard sprinklers and slip and slides for us where just you'd get a tarpaulin and you'd just uh, hose it down with water and you'd slide down a hill in your backyard. So that was the fun. Yeah. But it was both, both of us were regional Australia. Yeah. yeah. Quite inland, very dry. What do your parents do? What did they do? Um, so my, my dad was a forklift driver and my mum, the day I started school, was uh, started looking after kids at home. So she was just a kind of childcare worker. So I would come home from school and she'd have six or seven kids in the house always right up until I left. So, um, and they, they still live in the same house that I grew up in. Yeah, which is really sweet to go back and yeah and see yeah yeah and ma worked in uh healthcare dementia care oh, wow. yeah yeah it was like a community run uh aged care facility like but it was run by the town which had about 700 people uh in it a, su a surprising amount of people in a nursing home too i can't remember how yeah, yeah but it was it was they were busy 
but she's a little bit of a rebel, so she'd be the one that would sneak them out on bus trips to the local pool and um, keep chickens for them out the back because yeah. they weren't allowed to have it. So she was a bit of a hellraiser. Yeah, she used to always get told off by a boss. But yeah. because she'd worked with uh, people with dementia for so long, she recognised different traits and things like that. So she knew if she could tap into to something uh, that someone loved, you know, that could potentially, she felt like, sort of slow it down a little bit. You were never going to reverse dementia and you're never going to cure it. But she used to tell me about this old lady, like, that loved pruning roses. And so Ma would go and plant all these roses every spring. And the woman would just, every morning, would, like, trim them. Like, and then by the end of spring, there were just these nubs in the ground because she'd forgotten she'd done it. But she loved it. She'd, and that was the thing. She'd get up and tell everyone, all right, I'm off to do the roses. Or the bloke with the chickens, yeah. Oh, I'm not just off to check the eggs. And she's the Australian Golden Gumleaf champion, the only female to ever win the Golden Gumleaf. So she was a professional gumleaf player, so she can play music with the eucalyptus leaf. Wow. Any song. Yeah, she's very, very Yeah, cool. and the only That's female. Cool. It's yeah. like the top prize. Yeah. So it's a really old, bushy sort of thing. So it was like the Indigenous people used to play the gumleaf. Um, grandpa, and this is our son, Grandpa. <laughs> grandpa, <laughs> chill out. That's a very big It's okay. Come on, boy. <laughs> oh, God. Yeah, so, yeah, um, her pa learnt it from, uh, yeah, some, some Indigenous fellow, and, and Mum just loved it, and so she learnt it. But it's that, not surprising, it's like a real dying art now. Um, there's not many people that can still do it or pass it on. So, yeah, Mum was very fortunate. She got um, archived in the National Gallery, one of her songs. And, oh, fantastic. Yeah, they used to roll her out. When, I think she played, she definitely played for some royalty. Like, uh, yeah. yeah, they would, when it, they'd be like, yeah. It was just, it's a very Aussie thing <laughs> to, to experience someone it's playing. very haunting as well, the sound. Yeah. Have you ever yeah. seen Picnic at Hanging Rock? The, the, film? the Peter Weir film, I've still oh, never seen yeah. it. I've got I it. I have but, to see it. Uh, yeah. I've yeah. seen other things he's done. But not yeah, right. it's classic. It's a gum leaf in the background. Uh, okay. Yeah. And you mentioned Indigenous people. Did you grow up with Indigenous people around you at school? Well, we both grew up with very different, probably, well, obviously very different communities. There's, uh, I can't remember how many uh, First Nations communities. Well, the really interesting thing is, so they have kind of something like, well, there's hundreds and hundreds of nations that they're from. Mm -hmm. So then I was from this place called Wiradjuri country. So they were the Wiradjuri people and then Ro lived somewhere different. So but, my, uh, yeah, that was the Yorta Yorta people So they then they have all their different kind of folklores and traditions and stuff. But living in the bush, um, like uh, in my my town in particular, we had like quite a huge indigenous population. And actually, one of the most prominent families there were a family called the Beale family. So they shared the same last name as us as well. So they'd always come um, to our school, the elders, and um, teach didgeridoo, and we'd do emu egg carving. It wasn't as celebrated as it is in somewhere like New Zealand, which really has been kind of collectively kind of embraced. Yeah. Um, they but had a treaty. Yeah, yeah. It was just like just normal for me. Right. And it was, they brought a lot to like where I lived. It was like, it was, yeah. I always thought it made it like an interesting place, which would otherwise be just the dust bowl yeah. where I lived. Yeah, well, I think my experience was very, very different. I think, um, so 
I grew up in Victoria and Melbourne had the largest Indigenous community. And then where I grew up, uh, Shepparton had the second largest Indigenous community in Victoria. It was like very much, it was very racially charged, I think, growing up there for me. You know, the Indigenous community weren't celebrated. We never would have had someone come to our school and do egg carving or no. And I don't know, I don't know why. I, you know, I can't really put my finger on why. Well, it's quite a different, um, well, no, it's not any different to mine, but like having been to there probably took, was very, you know, white and working class. And, but now it's the most multicultural place in Australia and lots of refugees and interesting kind of people from all over the world have moved oh, yeah. there. Um, so it's certainly changed. Yeah, it's definitely um, changed. But I think in the bush in Australia, typically, um, it's, um, and even it's reflected in politics, um, yeah. it's, um, it's, it's um, the different values um, to, to what like inner city kind of um, people might do. Anyway, let's not get into politics. Mm. Well, no, it's, it's fascinating. I mean, the, yeah. the, the story of, of people is so interesting. And yeah. the, the, the people of Australia, I'm particularly fascinated by the work of Bruce Chatwin, who wrote yeah. the Songlines. Yeah. Oh, yeah. To me, that's one of the you know, most, that concept of the Songlines is so, so it's beautiful. Beautiful, yeah. Um, and it, you know, I, I guess that's kind of what I'm trying to do with this project in a way as well, is weave people's songlines of their own lives over the land yeah. and kind of make a tapestry of, 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 of and thread a tapestry of, of yeah. stories so that in the future with this project, if people come here, they know that it's not just the posh people whose lives were recorded. Yeah. It's yeah. everyone's life. Yeah. yeah. There's posh people in amongst this and that notional term posh. Yeah. Um, you know, there's that fantastic book the by Joe Curry about the people of Mull, but it's not about every people people it's only about the rich people of Mull at yeah. a certain period. It's yeah. not or or the people who at one point were rich maybe. Yeah. Um, it's not about the everyday people living in the croft yeah. or whatever. Um so I think the weaving of things is, is vitally important of yeah. stories and Yeah. Well, that's it with um, like um, First Nations people in Australia. They that that all of their like st folklore and like customs, everything is all verbal, isn't it? Yeah, it's yeah. Just beautiful. Yeah, there's um, the book the Songs of Central Australia by Streller, I think it is, and that which really inspired Chapman's work. And I think it's it's illegal to. I think it's not. You're not supposed to have copies of it because it is sacred knowledge. Yeah. 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 And it's wild because some of those, um, even in just recent years, like I've been reading articles and, you know, the last person from that community uh, passed away and that's the, the language gone. Like it wasn't recorded. It wasn't. Thousands of years. Yeah, gone. Yeah. Like that, yeah. that just, yeah. And I think, you know, I think, yeah, like we said, attitudes are definitely shaping. And I think Australia's got a long way to go. But when I moved to Queensland, I moved to Cairns, which also had a very big Indigenous population. And that was probably the first time I saw it celebrated. Uh, and it, don't get me wrong, it's not perfect. And there's a lot of work that needs to be done, I think, to bring, you know, Australians together. But oh, I went to some exhibitions there that were just beautiful. I heard William Bartlett uh, perform the didgeridoo. He, you know, oh my God, it was amazing. Like, and to, to that should have been more, I, I feel, yeah in my school when I was growing up as a child, and it wasn't, um, you know, it was uncomfortable. People didn't want to talk about it. And it is an uncomfortable conversation. I'm no expert on it, but I was born in the 80s and you still had people from the stolen generation losing their children in the 70s. So that was 10 years before I was born. So the I think Australian broadcast culture deals with 
what my understanding of the situ situations are very very well um the work of like um abc around this is yeah really abc do a great job they really do i listen to um conversations with indira and i do yeah richard feidler and all that and i just love it it's so good and is it night lines as well as another one yeah but there's one of my favorite of the ones <laughs> it's called stuff the british stole yeah they shipped us out there and then they oh, stole everything so mean. Like, mean. can you imagine stealing a bit of bread or cheese and you got put on a boat i don't know how many days it took to get from london to australia yeah. but that was and then just left like yeah. yeah well and of course like then macquarie came from um around these parts as well right. and then you know he had an interesting kind of um you know impact there as well with Very indigenous people as well. yeah. Yeah. yeah and rightly so it's yeah definitely definitely up for assessment again I would say, yeah. absolutely but like, that's i think with a lot of australian history you know, I think you're right. I think a lot of it's up for assessment because when we were young, it was a very different story. Yeah. We were taught in schools. Yeah. Complete, yeah. like, yeah, yeah, completely different. And then now we're like, you know, you might, like you introduced me to that podcast, Rum Rebels and Rat Bags. Yeah. And they were oh, that one, that's good. Yeah, it's a good one. And they were talking about government acquire. And I was listening and I was like, what? Yeah. What? Yeah. I'm like, how is no one... Mention why are we not talk, talking? Well, there's an interesting um, bloke that Macquarie met out there called Benalong. Um, yes. Yeah, and we thought, yeah, sorry, what you oh, Benalong's a fascinating character. Yeah. Um, the Benalong Point is yeah. where yeah. the Opera House is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. and then they thought he, he was going to be um, the person that they could tame and bring back to London and kind of show off. Um, these native people, um, and they dressed him up in like you know all of their very, clothes. Very clever too, and wasn't he? He was a very clever man. Clever, and yeah. then he got there and he played ball. But then um, when he got back, he I think speared one of them um, and ran off. Yeah. But um, anyway, we named this house Benalong. Oh, <laughs> yeah. yeah, so this house was named Benalong. We thought that might maybe um, make cool. Macquarie um, a bit upset. If we uh, well, no, I just think along back. Well, yeah, 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 balance. Yeah, he was a real warrior, and he rallied, he rallied the the, the troops because they were they were communities that were living there that yeah. weren't necessarily didn't necessarily get along. Yeah, and then all of a sudden he's like, right, guys. Okay, we've got a common, common sort of enemy. But I love when they were looking for him, um, all of the, um, yeah, when the, the British soldiers and the guards were all yelling out Benalong and then all the ladies in the bush started yelling out Benalong, Benalong, Benalong. Um, so they so were just whenever, taunting them. Yeah, they'd come, they'd come by in the boats because they were looking for him. They wanted him uh, to capture him, I guess, again when he escaped. And, yeah, they'd call from the boats in the shore like Benalong, Benalong. Mm. And the ladies would be like, been along, been along, like just yeah, <laughs> yeah, make fun of them. And but it's interesting because like I've been to the mausoleum here, yeah. um, Macquarie's mausoleum, and they've got you know I think Aussies make the pilgrimage to like see yeah. that, and they like leave an esky or a beer there for him, and it's like oh that's interesting because there's you know there's two sides to every story, yeah. Well, and you only know what you know, isn't? That's you true. Know. Yeah, what you learned at school, and I think yeah, no, don't, I think yeah. I guess one thing for me is, like, when you only know what you know, growing up, like, I was surrounded by a lot of racism, yeah. even though I was, I was part of this really big Indigenous community, but it wasn't celebrated and mm. there was a lot of racism. And I just thought that was normal. And I remember when I moved to far north Queensland, up to Cairns, and it was a completely different experience. And I saw 
you know, Indigenous people uh, employed in businesses and shops and things like that. But I hadn't seen that in my community. When we were younger, we were led to believe that, you know, oh, they would say, oh, the Indigenous, oh, they're lazy or da 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 They don't want jobs. They don't want to work. And then when I went older and went out to Cairns and saw, you know, or everyone just getting along together, I was like, no, I don't think we would have given you a job. I think in my town, wow. you didn't, it wasn't that they didn't, you know, the Indigenous people didn't want to work. Of course I would work. I, I lived in a really racist community that wouldn't employ them and, and wouldn't give that opportunity. But when you grow up like that, I didn't know I was racist until I left. And you then- You were not racist, but- Well, no, in a way I was, absolutely. And it's a yucky thing to say, but it's, it's true. And I grew, yeah. That's another question then. Um, I'm very conscious of Australian gay culture being a very positive thing from how it's presented to the world. What was the reality of that growing up in in Australia? Was it was it a positive experience? Was it a difficult mm. experience? If that's okay to ask. <laughs> yeah. yeah, of course. Oh, I think we're laughing because, oh, well, not for me. Not um, for me. I think, yeah, I think it was, yeah, I was, I was kind of, bullied and teased um, from a really young age for being gay, even though I didn't yet know or hadn't assigned the word to it, yeah. or I'm you still figuring out yeah. who I am. That was a really interesting kind of journey for me. And I mean, even like even some teachers weren't, weren't cool with it. Then I started probably going even further inwards and like, you know, I, I probably put on a deeper voice and uh, retreated further and kind of denied it even more, yeah, for years um, until I eventually came out. But I always knew I'd come out the minute I left the place and I did, like I'd moved to Sydney and that then the next day I, you know, came out to my parents um, who I was nervous about how they'd react but they had nothing but love for me and weirdly didn't see it coming, which is weird for me because yeah. that's, I'm sure there were lots of signs. Um, but um, yeah, it wasn't, wasn't super pleasant. No, and I think, you know, um, I don't want to like slag my town off where I grew up. And, and, you know, we were in regional Australia and it was a different time in the 80s and da da da. But like when I, you know, say that people, there was quite a lot of racism in my community, there was also, quite a lot of homophobia in my community. There was yeah. also quite a lot of misogyny in my community. Yeah. Um, and it's, there's no excuse, but it was of its time, that was just what it was. And it made it really hard, I think, for me. I know, you know, like I suffer from uh, depression and anxiety now. Um, that's something I've just dealt with my whole life. But I know a lot of that probably came from that time of... Yeah. Being just too scared, being so scared of who you are and thinking something's wrong with you, like, it's such a mm -hmm. weird thing. It was, yeah. I remember before I even knew, because there was no reference, so you didn't have any gay reference either yeah. in these, no, you didn't like. Bizarrely, they were like, my parents are still blasting kind of um, Elton John and Queen, yeah. but they're... But, reading of Freddie Mercury as a Peanuts character. Uh, oh, yeah, yeah. No. Perfect. <laughs> but still, like, it's like not, not, in, not, not in my backyard, like, oh, you know. Um, yeah, so you're just trying to navigate, it's really hard because I think you're just trying to navigate it on your own. I know I was. Oh, yeah. You don't have anyone to talk to. 
Like growing up's already weird. Yeah. Being a teenager is already weird. You're yeah. self-conscious anyway. Yeah. And then when you're trying to figure out your sexual identity, which doesn't really matter now that you're an adult, but then. Yeah. And you can't talk to your pals about it. And yeah. you don't even know what gay was. I remember there was a, a brief time of like my adolescence where I was like, ah, oh, okay, so I think all men are attracted to men. However, men can't have babies. So that for we must have sex with women to have kids. I'm like, geez, that's weird. Like, but that was like a good year of that, that all men are just must be attracted to men, but we need to have children. So that's why we marry women. And then it got to a point I'm like, oh no, that's just me that's attracted to other to other men. Like, but I didn't, I didn't know, and it wasn't talked about, and I wasn't taught in schools, and it, and it doesn't have to be taught. Like I get sick of hearing this crap, you know, like about people being like, yeah, anyway. But it doesn't have to be taught, it just needs to be discussed that, hey, yeah, another blase topic of, oh yeah, well, as you grow up, this might happen. And, yeah. yeah. Do you feel that um, that aspect of, of cultural identity in Australia has changed in the last years. For, I'd, I'd say for the, one of the first times I encountered it was um, through uh, a gay flatmate I had and he introduced me to Priscilla, Queen of the Desert. Uh, yeah. oh, and I was like, that's just the best thing ever. Yeah. yeah. Fantastic. Yeah. And, you know, a cock and a fucking <coughs> rock. Yeah. yeah. Wonderful. And, it's like, and the beautiful <laughs> moment of Terence Stamp in the water uh, as well. And it was like, yeah. this is just fantastic to see that from a an Australian cinematic point from then yeah. before that I'd maybe seen Mad Max or yeah. you know Crocodile Dundee yeah I'd yeah. see that I was like well that that's good well, yeah. I mean it's funny because we've oh, it's always been there like um pop culturally like yeah. in Australia oh, like you Dame had Edna. Dame Edna oh, didn't God, you yeah and then right of God. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah and you have like the, you know Peter Allen like the boy from Oz um, all of these kind of things. Um, and then Mardi Gras is like a huge thing in Sydney and then Kylie Minogue. And so like Australia is like the campus place ever. But when you go kind of, a, you know, a few miles down the freeway out of a city, that's then when it's not really kind of discussed and this um, macho kind of culture kind of exists. And, um, you know, a lot of, you know, all the... All my gay friends when I moved to Sydney, that was young people just moving from country towns, oh, kind yeah. of escaping. Um, oh, yeah. But Priscilla was a big turning point because that was kind of reflecting, like, you know, the gays going back to the bush and we both come yeah. from the bush. So yeah. us walking, Pedi, yeah, 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 Broken Hill, Cooper Pedi, yeah. all these wild kind of outlaw towns. And the success of it, I think, yeah. was probably like it was maybe the beginning of a shift like for to have that was the first probably big queer moment for australian culture i think to be projected across across the world like that was a success in america that was a success here in the uk it turned into a, a play that i think is still touring yes, a, a musical yeah. a musical that's been going for almost two decades yeah like that was huge at the time but even then it was like maybe it felt like you know, it was a movie, it wasn't real. But I think it just began to maybe create some cracks where people could talk about drag queens or people could talk about queer queer yeah. things. And it was okay, you know, like yeah. you could have macho blokes at a barbecue that watch Priscilla Queen of the Desert with their wives and, you know, for different reasons they enjoyed it. Or So that was that was nice, I think, looking back. I think that was nice. Yeah. 
I'm so conscious there's so, so much we, we could talk about. Gosh, yeah. um, so you, we keep coming back to the cities. Tell me about the cities. So where did you settle in the cities first? Oh, Melbourne. I just, straight to Melbourne. Yeah, so that was uh, about two hours north of where I grew up. And that was amazing. Oh, I loved Melbourne. I used, to be, I used to go there when I was a baker pastry chef by trade. And so my trade school was in Melbourne. So I started going there when I was 14 for the theoretical side of learning. Yeah, and I just remember turning up in that city and just like, oh, see you soon. Like as soon as I can get here, you know, seeing alternatively dressed people, like seeing grunge, you know, back then I'd like really love Nirvana and all that sort of stuff. And then going into the city and seeing goth people and then, See, it was crazy, like the, the different people just expressing themselves so differently that I wasn't seeing in my country town. Mm. Oh, and I couldn't wait to move there. And then as soon as I could, I did. And I loved it. And then I got a job, like speaking, going back to maybe queerness. I remember I got a job in a call centre. And it was the first time I'd seen openly gay people in a workplace. And I was like, wow, like the big boss is gay. Like, and no one cares. Uh, no one, yeah, no one. And like, there's so many gay people around me. And like, it was so nonchalant. And it was, that was so beautiful. It still took me probably a year before I came out. I still hadn't come, come out then. Yeah. Oh, that was so nice to see. I just started to feel really comfortable with who I was and then got to explore myself and maybe unpack, you know, well, not unpack, like derobe all of those layers of masking I'd put up you know, trying to be straight and trying to be macho and trying to be tough and, and yeah, be like a real man, whatever that even is. Yeah. yeah, I got to like, yeah, really rediscover myself in Melbourne and the city. And it's a very creative city, uh, lots of art, lots of culture. So there was lots of different point of views. And even if I didn't agree with them, it was great that you could see them. Like, yeah. and then, yeah, oh, I loved... Melbourne will always have a special place in my heart. And then that's where I met you. Yeah. Yeah. But I, I, I moved to Sydney as soon as I could. Yeah. And then I got a job um, working in radio. So I worked behind the scenes in radio and then became a kind of um, my job title. I ended up being ideas director at a radio station where I just wow. literally just had to come up with ideas. It was kind of the dream, oh. dream job. I, I'm sorry, but why did I, you ever leave? I know. I actually didn't have to do anything it set me up for failure for yeah. life because everyone else had to actually make the ideas happen I just had to think of them but I look back on that time and I'd spent maybe 10 years like I'd working in radio in Sydney and then I moved to Melbourne for my job working in radio again that was like all about just being creative and um probably to this day I kind of use those same kind of techniques to come up with ideas so probably was a good training ground for what I do. What were the ideas you came up with for radio? <laughs> I'm thinking Alan Partridge, Monkey Tennis, oh, I don't know. What so it's like, so sometimes I'd be for advertisers or sometimes they'd just be for no reason. Um, like radio, you have like three hours of dead air to fill every day. So, you know, it would be a brief for mushroom growers in Australia would come across my desk. And so then I'd have to come up with the next day, um, an idea for the next day. So we'd have, you know, breakfast of champignons so we did just mainly just puns I had to come up with so because you were a fun guy 
I found hey. that. Hey. Oh, I missed oh, that actually. one. Gosh. Well, <coughs> yeah. That was a missed opportunity. Um, yeah, so it was quite ridiculous. But You've in... got mushroom to grow, don't worry. Oh, you have missed your <laughs> calling. <laughs> Sorry. So much room to grow. Oh, I'm out of habit. I can't think of any. I'd kind of rested on breakfast of champignons. Um, yeah, so it was kind of ridiculous and definitely has a, had a use by date. So that's why when I met Ro in Melbourne, I was pretty, you know, highly strung, tightly wound um, in a big kind of corporate kind of job, even though it seems kind of creative. I'd kind of worked my way up in this place but definitely wasn't fulfilled. And then I met Ro, who was this happy-go-lucky guy working in a fruit and vegetable shop and didn't have a care in the world and was telling me all about the times he's travelled and he was just free. And I was, I'd probably still be there still, maybe if I hadn't met Ro. Um, and he just kind of opened up my world and we hatched a plan to just, get out of there and travel the world. So that's when we bought a one-way ticket to Sri Lanka and we put a put a pin in the calendar for two months' time to save up as much money as we can and then we just left. Yeah. Yeah. That's wonderful. Yeah, that's good. Why Sri Lanka first? I think it was the cheapest flight. It was the cheapest flight. flight. Yeah. What is that? How far can we get for the littlest amount of money? Yeah. And we and we um, got our visas to come and work in the UK. And we thought we'd do that, that rite of passage all Aussies do and, you know, get a job in a bar in London. But, um, you know, by the time we got there, that wasn't, that wasn't it. Yeah. Yeah. So traveling, we're because I'm very conscious when I was saying uh, before we started recording, the first time I was conscious of you guys was from um, your food work with uh, the, here at the Glass Barn yeah. doing uh, Nepalese curries and things yeah. like that. What, where were the highlights for you of travel and why did you connect so much with Nepal? Um, Nepal for me, so I went out to Nepal a couple of years before I met you, I think it was the first time I went out there. I was in India. I was going. I went to India for a friend's wedding, and I'm like, "Oh, I'll go for three weeks um, and before the wedding, and then enjoy the wedding." And I got to India, and it just what now I know would be culture shock, but I didn't identify it as culture shock in the time. And I was like, "Oh my god, how am I going to stay here for three weeks before my pal's wedding? Like, how am I going to do this?" And so I'm like, "I'm out." And I just remember like looking at the map, and I'm like, "Where's the nearest country I can get to?" And it was in Nepal. And I'm like, I just went straight up to Nepal and I crossed the border and it was just like someone turned the volume down. And I was like, ah. Oh. And then I fell in love with it straight away, but I didn't have much time and I wanted to do a trek. And I was looking at all the different treks and what you can do. And there's a place called Lungtung Valley above Kathmandu on the border of Tibet slash China. And you could experience a lot in about seven days. You went through quite a different uh, few altitudes and climates and things like that. So I was like, oh. Great. I don't have much time. I'll, I'll go there and then I'll head back to my pal's wedding. You can't get there by vehicle. You have has to walk. There's no, there's no shortcut. Like you just go up the valley along the track. And I met this bloke on the way and he was like, he's like, uh, so I'd seen it quite a few times, people coming up the valley or down the valley. If you forgot your keys or something, or you took them with you and you needed to leave them at home, you would pass them on to this other person that was going that way. It was very, there was a lot of trust. And this bloke, he was like, gave me some carrots and he's like, he was a local fellow and he was trying to explain to me, his English was pretty good, sung. And he's like, oh, can you give these carrots to my brother? He was saying friendly guest house. 
And I'm like, cool. But I thought he was saying Prangley. And I couldn't quite figure out the guest house bit. So when I got up the top, I was asking around for Prangley, Prangley, could anyone? No one knew what I was talking about. And then this other bloke found me and he's like, oh, you have the carrots? And I'm like, oh, yeah, yeah, I've got the carrots. Man, this is two days walk. Yeah, this is two days. Oh, yeah, from so he's getting the carrots, carrots, it's two days later with the carrots. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, and so that, and then I became, so that was Pasang, and then so I met his brother Dawa, um, and we just became f- friends. And then, yeah, I met Dawa and his family and his brothers, and, and then Lakshmi, his niece, who I was just on the phone with today, she was maybe eight, nine years old, but she wasn't going to school because they couldn't afford for her to go to school, so it uh, wasn't uh, an option. That's because the nearest school was, you know, two days walk down a mountain and they'd have to board there, yeah. which costs money. Yeah, money they didn't have. Yeah, I remember thinking, I can probably pay for this girl's education. Like, I can pr- like, because in my mind, I was like, I smoke cigarettes, and I drink beer. Like that's luxurious because I was looking around in these communities I was passing through and seeing uh, poverty and the same in India that I'd never witnessed or experienced before. And I'm like, I'm like, what luxury. I can smoke a cigarette. Like that is the stupidest thing in the world, isn't it? Like I'm buying something that's actually even making me sick, but doesn't get any benefit. From, like, and so I remember thinking, if you can afford cigarettes and beer, you can afford to put her through school. So Ro had been sponsoring her for then a couple of years when I had met him and he'd always told me about this place and that was, to me, somewhere that we really wanted to go together. And so when we got there, um, when when we were travelling, that was kind of where we were heading for and it was the most beautiful place and they're like mm. our family. So yeah. we kind of, Ro and I got there and, you know, we're, we're part of their family, like they're our brothers. And, um, they and it was get, Christmas time. It was Christmas. And but they, they didn't know what Christmas was. No. But they knew it was like... A celebration. So for them, it might be like Lolsa, which yeah. they, they celebrate, yeah. or, or Diwali. So they tried to do a Christmas for us, which was really beautiful. And They got, um, they got a bottle of Coke and yeah. they made French fries for breakfast yeah. for us. For it was Christmas. ideal, actually. Perfect. Christmas um, yeah, they were like, well, I don't know what you yeah. do. But, so we had yeah. the most amazing time there. And, um, and we stayed there with them for a while, quite a while. And, um, yeah. you know, the day we left... Um, a terrible earthquake happened and wiped out their entire village. So a village of 300 people, 120 people were left. And so our our friend's son was killed in the earthquake and so many people, all their crops were wiped out, their animals, their livelihood. It was was catastrophic. So yeah, we went back to help and, you know, in a Buddhist monastery and like helping and, you know, at one stage, none of them had survived, but then one by one kind of, uh, some of our family would kind of emerge, like they'd be getting rescued by helicopters over a week. They were still trapped in the mountain. It wasn't the earthquake that killed them, it was a massive avalanche. avalanche yeah. yeah. There was so a big glacier above. Really horrible. Just exploded. Um, so um, it, it was quite, a, a traumatic time and um, we were lucky our friends were lucky they lost one member of their family that was unheard of everyone else was losing half lost half their family yeah. all their family yeah. like 
So, so that was such a big, um, that became like a big part of like our journey. And then eventually, I mean, we ended up here um, on Mull and on our first night we were here, we were telling Chris at Scabrua about it. She was like, well, we need to do something. And we're like, well, yeah, she goes, well, and she, as you know, is just a force of nature. And she's like, we need to start raising money. And then all of a sudden we'd been here a week and then Ro and I are doing curry nights in the barn, raising money for all our, you know, friends and their family in Nepal. Which um, was wild, like, because the, I just remember being shocked that people came, like yeah. people of Mull came. Yeah. That was so, that was and it makes me, yeah, it makes me emotional every time I talk about it because it was, they didn't know us, they didn't know our friends. Um, and it was such a hard time. But everyone would give, like it would be 15 quid for like oh. the curry, but if people would give, you know, 40 quid and they'd be like, because they would hear the story and they're like, oh, we want to do something. And so then every week we'd kind of be serving up the curry and people would just want to help. And then that was yeah. like, was some a small thing that we could do and then um or, or i don't know how it happened but fast forward then at the end of the season um we were back in nepal with chris and then so we took chris back to nepal well, you we were... asked her didn't no the first year, oh, the first year yeah. yeah we asked chris if she'd love to come back and meet everyone because it's a big part of chris's story and so chris came back with us and we taught them cheese making um so they have their yaks and their there actually is a bit of a cheese connection from Switzerland over there. But Chris taught them how to make soft cheese, some quick cheese that they could start selling to start earning some money. When money we raised was starting to rebuild some of their houses, buy some more yaks, you know, um, buy, um, you know, to... Sarah from um, Tob Stores gave us money to buy potatoes, seed potatoes for, for... a farmer, yeah. um, Furpu. And so everyone wanted to help in was... a way that spoke to them. So it was beautiful for us to go back. And so we're trekking with this 80 year old granny up a mountain. Because <laughs> um, it's tough. Like it's tough. even as a young, like, yeah. as a, like when I first, Went there like you were probably twenty nine. Yeah. My first time was twenty seven. So you're young, yeah. But it's the, into the Himalayas, yeah. and it's like you're just walking up, like yeah. up and in. It's yeah. just so. Then there was yeah, beautiful, and the Chris, I can't believe she did it yeah. twice, if not three times. Yeah, and, yeah. and they all call Chris Amma. Um, that she's like their 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 Amma, their their mum. Their, their and um, they they all love her. And then the next year, um, somehow, so Chris has like asked all the friends if they want to come. And then next year, like we're leading another trek up the hill with people from Mull delivering that year's money and kind of making more connections. And then beautiful people on Mull are sponsoring other kids to go to school. And so suddenly there's this beautiful kind of exchange between these two places and yeah. fast forward and latch me now who Ro met on the mountain it's like we're All just years ago yeah she's um gonna she's studying to be a nurse and lots of other kids are graduating from school that people like people from Mull have like yeah, supported them support. so it's yeah it's just that kind of then Lakshmi is going to be studying nursing but we're trying to work out whether it was in the UK or Germany or where she wanted to do it 
But then one of the locum doctors here um, has a mum who's unwell over in Germany. And then she's like, well, actually, we're looking for a carer. And I'm like, oh, well, my pal's looking to study. Maybe she can study in Germany and, like, work with your mum. And it's like, still somehow that's connected. Yeah, yeah like. It's yeah. It was a beautiful thing, yeah, um, to come from something really terrible and immediately showed us, like, how great Mull oh, and the community yeah, like, is here, getting behind something I like that. I couldn't believe yeah. that everyone just got behind yeah. us and, yeah. and our now friends in the Chris pool. and all the sons, you know, Joe and Matthew, they've all been and, like, they've supported the course. And so it's yeah, been... Joe's boys went as well. Yeah, it's been a lovely, um, a lovely little thing, so... And if a listener wanted to support what yeah. you're doing, is there a, a, a link I could give in the podcast? Oh, just drop me a message. Yeah. Yeah. That's... One of the big things, I guess, if people want to support, like, so people have supported and what's been amazing is we've seen lots of our friends in Nepal and it was the farming communities we were really focusing on, mm. on helping after the earthquake because they, they were the ones that uh, everyone was affected, but uh, they didn't even have any pennies in the bank to fall back on. And... And so everyone was so great. And so a lot of our friends there now have, you know, like a small guest house or something where they can take in a lodger and yeah, which is fantastic. But in terms of help, it's like education, I think is such a key thing for the younger generation because that's what was missing. Like, you know, the, the people uh, couldn't break the cycle of sort of, I guess poverty is a strong word, but it, 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 it yeah, it is. Yeah, so if people want to cont contribute or want to help or feel like they could, yeah, there's a school that we've, uh, a lot, lot of people that um, from Mull have sponsored the children to go to that school and continuing helping that I think would be really special too. You mentioned that you came to Mull in passing mm -hmm. there. Yeah. How did that happen? Huh. Oh, so, that's Rose. It's Rose's fault why we're here because we we got to Brighton and we thought, oh, it's too cold. And then we um, went to London. London was too busy. London was too busy and expensive. Yeah, but I didn't know what London was. Mm. I hadn't even googled it. I just always heard about it in, in Australia. It's like London, London, London. Yeah. No, we uh, thought we had to go to London. Yeah. But then we kind of thawed out a little bit of Morocco and just got got our bearings. And Rose suddenly proclaimed that he's always wanted to make cheese in the highlands or islands and i'd never heard this before and i just was like okay let's let's go for it and then um we found the most surreal statement yeah, yeah. Well, it was... <laughs> yeah well but... because also growing up in regional australia I, i'd never seen fancy cheese as a kid then you just you know it was like supermarket equivalent to cathedral city yeah. um that's all i knew yeah. And then so when we met, I was working in this really nice sort of like fruit and veg shop, but it had nice cheeses in there. And I was like, oh, wow, like, how cool is this? And I went, yeah. And so that's where I sort of got, got a bit of the thing for cheese. And so then when we were traveling, I was like, oh, well, I wouldn't mind making cheese. Like that could so be, I really liked eating it. We found a website called 
um, woofing, mm. um, willing workers on organic farms, which unbeknownst to everyone on the farm, Chris's grandson, Ben, I think had put a post up advertising for, for workers. Yeah. So I contacted Bran and Sheila um, and they had no idea what we were talking about. Um, and But I had Googled the place and I said to Ro, we have got to go here. This yeah. looks so beautiful. And so I start emailing Sheila and I, she's kind of like, oh, no, not really. And then I'm like, but we're really keen. We'll work really hard. And she's like, well, I don't, think, gonna, they were, I don't think they were looking for they people. Weren't. She's like, well, you're going to live in a caravan in the middle of field with midges and you'll be cleaning toilets. And we're like, well, great. We're on the next train up. So we rocked up. But I was asking you to stop because Sheila was politely saying, oh, no, we're Same good. Much. We're good. We're good. And I'm like, stop. Like, how many times do you want to be rejected? Like, no. Sheila's saying no. We were meant to, but you Googled meant it. to be yeah. here. So you knew what it was, but I still no. didn't know what my there was. was a, there was something I knew that it was calling us, this place. Hmm. And then when we got here, immediately, we kind of fell in love with the place, the people. We, connect, we connected with Chris straight away. Yeah, and yeah the reads were we so had, welcoming. and Yeah, we yeah. found this, you know, motley crew of people that were working here at the time too that we just kind of hit it off with and you know when we walked into that caravan in the middle of the midgy field after backpacking you know through asia oh. and some dodgy place we felt like we were kings it we was like, so wow. luxurious i remember lily taking us in there um brendan and sheila's daughter lily she's like oh i'm sorry but it would be staying in the caravan and i just remember like this is huge. It's got two rooms. It's, it's got a kitchenette. Like, we, it was so yeah. lush compared to, yeah. we'd just been schlepping through Southeast yeah. Asia and India. Yeah. Like, yeah, it was, we thought we'd hit the big time. Yeah. <laughs> and then Ro, yeah, Ro, uh, you know, dived in headfirst to kind of, um, you know, farmy stuff. And then I... Um, yeah, I used to turn know, the cheese. Yeah. And... and then I was just cleaning cottages and um, Chris and I were starting to just wreak havoc and do craft together and um, just, um, you know, m you know, have lots of You fun. were the worst cottage cleaner. I wasn't. Apologies. <laughs> you were so bad. Poor Sheila. I would like, you'd finish a holiday cottage and then Sheila would have to just go in and check. Like, well, attention But I think she did say, Sheila used to say that you were good at like hiding, like, uh, what do you call it? You know when you're not cleaning but you're tidying. So it kind of looks clean but it's not, yeah. Yeah. Space. Yeah. Well, yeah. <laughs> I've never been good. No, it's, it's never not been your strong point. Yeah. But we were lucky because we were, so when we did come, it was the first two weeks was sort of uh, volunteer. So it was exchange for food and board yeah. and we'd work about 20 odd hours a week or something like that. Um, and I think after the first week they were like, oh, if you two want a job, like we've got yeah. a bit of work for the summer. Yeah. And, and we were like, so, oh, wow. yeah, we just did anything and anything, we mucked yeah. in. And then that's at the end of the season, we were kind of like, okay, well, we might go home. And then Chris said, would you love to come back? And we'd obviously been doing curry nights as well. And um, that was a roaring success. And then Chris said, would you boys like to come back and run the glass barn? And we thought, okay, wow, that's cool. So we. That was your first exercise in branding here wasn't it because i think i think it was actually it's always been called the greenhouse the family call it the greenhouse and you 
you renamed them. You renamed their business. Sorry about that. The glass barn. Of course, I call it the glass barn. And yeah, yeah. you don't have to do anything with that space. Chris, Chris, and Jeff, and the whole family like made something so beautiful there. Like it's always going to be a beacon for people coming. So we felt quite honoured just to be custodians of it then, Um, and maybe put our Australian kind of hospitality eyes on it because. I think at that time, you know, in coming from Australia, we're spoiled for choice for like flat whites and smashed avo on toast. And Ro was a baker pastry chef yeah. and I quite yeah. fancied making everything look really beautiful. So it was, okay, it was a perfect little mix and we did it really well. But evidently we found out us two are the ones that can't work together. <laughs> so that's when we realised yeah. we should not work oh my together. God. And poor Louise. So then we hired Louise Reed, who at the time we thought was a lot older than she was, but she wasn't. She was actually quite a bit younger than us. Um, and so we hired Louise and she used to just whip us into shape. Like we'd be bickering like, well, no, you do that, you do that. And she's like, neither of you have time for that. You haven't been washing your dishes and you could have them. Like, sorry, Louise, sorry, Louise. Yeah, right. And she, yeah, she just sorted us out, didn't yeah. she? We couldn't have done it without her. Like yeah. Lulu just was... Yeah, so that was... So good to us. Yeah, so it was just... And that was at the time you didn't have a kitchen and so we were making everything just out the front there and Chris was, like, really all hands-on still. Yeah, Chris was so doing the sourdough. All of us, yeah, scones. It, it was the best and worst of times. <laughs> <laughs> um, so we, yeah, that only lasted a season. Another season. Yeah. yeah. And then we actually thought, okay, we want to go back to Australia mm. now. Like we really need to thaw out. Like it's cold. Um, it's wet. Um, and <laughs> yeah, revelation. Yes. Yeah. Um, um, yeah. I know. I remember sitting on the grass, like it was sunny here for a few days or something. I sat down on the grass and my bum was wet and I was like, it's still wet. Like it's been sunny for like three, four days and I still can't sit on the grass. And so we went back, we said our goodbyes and we yeah. left and we went back to Australia and um, I went back, you know, Rose's mum was sick and um, and then I went, somehow found myself commuting back from the bush to the city while Ro looked after his mum. I got a yeah. job back in radio and I'm like, wow, did that any of that happen? And we moved to Queensland and kind of set up this life for us and it was beautiful. That was good. Palm trees and yeah. tropical fruits in our backyard and it was all beautiful. Um, but then we saw an ad online for the Puffer Pub in Easdale oh. for sale yeah. and we were like, oh, my God. And Ro and I looked at each other and we thought, we should buy that. And we're like, we want to go back there. And we're like, I think we do. So we yeah. kind of investigated doing the puffer and that wasn't going to quite work out. Meanwhile, we bought a house because we're like, it was yeah. time to grow up. Like, we're like, yeah. we have to stop traveling. We have to. So we bought a house yeah. and we got cars and got a dog. And yeah. We're like, yeah, let's do this. And yeah. it just, we tried, but it just wasn't, it just awesome. wasn't right. Even though it was beautiful, yeah. like, it just wasn't right. No. And so then we saw that the, the cheese maker job was coming back up here and I'd message Lily and I said oh what do you reckon like us moving back and row doing the cheese making job and then that just kick-started it and then of course that was around the time COVID was kind of kicking off as well yeah. so then we had to navigate coming here during COVID getting our visas and we eventually made it back so um and brought grandpa back and that was Ridiculous. grandpa our dog he's Australia yeah and all our flights got... Accent, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> He's definitely a rough 
boy from the bush. Yeah. Um, he was a rescue dog, um, even rougher place than both of us where we were yeah. born. Um, so he's a scrappy little boy. But um, we, we, like, we just, you know, threw out that all in and we knew that this is where we're meant to be and we just was yeah it was like a magnet it was like a magnetic yeah. pull that and i think it like it is home like people are like oh do you miss home and i'm like well no i think i think this is home like i don't yeah. i don't get homesick for australia don't get me wrong like every now and then i wouldn't mind a bit of sunshine and swim in warm water but no this is yeah. home. it felt like it honestly it felt like coming home like on the ferry that journey yeah. it was like oh yeah. I always think my favourite part of um, England is the sign that says welcome to Scotland. Oh. And then my my next part is like, you know, you get, I feel like you're, you're on. Mullet. No, well, I like the green <laughs> mull. But you're on mull when you get in the ferry queue because that's when everyone is there that you know and then you're on the ferry and like, you know, you can't not be on there with someone you don't know. It begins there. But that's the thing we love as well, like, the community and know, having all your mates and knowing people. And sometimes you want to be anonymous, but you, you just, once you lean into it, like, I think we had lived here two days when we were woofing and someone invited us over for dinner and we're like, oh, I'm a vegetarian. And like, oh, we know. So like people know your business, <laughs> yeah. but it I, keeps you honest too, doesn't yeah. it? Yeah. Yeah. No, which I kind of, which I kind of like, cause I think Growing up, I did, like, when I lived in the city, like, I did hide. It was nice to have that anonymity because, you know, I was still figuring out who I was. And mm -hmm. and then, yeah, they're coming here and sort of having all of that sort of stripped away and you just are who you are and yeah. people are going to know you and they're going to know you inside out and back to front. You just need to accept that. Yeah. And But also makes you put your best foot forward and you try and... But we were worried about when we were coming here as well, we're like, oh... Should we tell them we're a couple and, or should, well, I mean. Oh yeah, because when we looked on the map, we're like, where is Mullen? I'm like, oh, yeah. that's pretty far up. I'm like, so, so straight away we were like, yeah. regional Australia, yeah. sort of like, oh, like, oh, are they going to be hillbillies up there? Yeah. Like, we, we didn't know, we didn't know how far north. And then when we got there and Chris, <laughs> was, Chris was like, yay, you're gay. <laughs> like, all my dreams have come true. She goes, no, we must go down to the mess shopping. Um, I need an outfit. So Chris, um, I think. Oh, like, you and Chris. Well, Chris, I'm probably like the, yeah, yeah. the, the daughter <laughs> that she never had. <laughs> so, yeah, no, we were welcomed straight away. Yeah, we? yeah. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, it wasn't a thing. COVID fell as well. Mm. I'm conscious that's that's only three years ago, really. Mm. You're you've both got two separate careers that are extraordinary. I like you're both making big impact with both of your careers. How let's start with yourself. How how, how did your career in design yeah. come to be, Nigel? Well, I think um we were we moved back for Roe to, you know, be a cheese maker and be the production manager at the farm. So I was just kind of this housewife 
And I was like, oh, what am I going to do? And then so I'd do bits and bobs on the farm and I'd be turning cheese in the cellar and mm. picking up shifts in the barn and helping out where I can, but nothing really fulfilling. And so I thought, oh, what am I going to do? I was a bit of a... You were lost. I was lost. You were yeah. so, so lost. I was lost. So then I watched... And you were so frustrated. Like... Yeah, but I was lost. Um, so I watched this tele... I was... Oh, God, no, You're I wasn't. So... Like, what am I doing with my life? And I'm like, don't worry about it. Like, what will be will be. Like, So I watched this telly program, Interior Design Masters, and I'm like, that's it. I'm going to be an interior designer. And I'm like, I'm going to apply to go on that show. But before that, you were like, in the months leading up to that, you were like, I'm going to be a beeswax wrap maker. Oh. And I'm like, really? And you're like, yeah, I've always wanted to make beeswax. I'm like, oh, okay. And then, and then I was going to be a perfumer. Yeah, and like, then I was like, oh, I'm going to make all these perfumes, all these essential oils are coming to the house. I was giving everything a go. <laughs> yeah, so then, so yeah, well, it's true. And, and then, then, then I got on this show. So I came home from work, and you were like, um, you're like, oh, so I've applied to go on this television show, and I'm like, what? <laughs> what? And you're like, oh yeah, you know. And I'm like, oh gosh. And I was like, after the beeswax wraps and the, the perfume and a few of the other things, I was like, oh, this is just another one. Yeah. Like, so but then they, they, the BBC weren't going to put me on because they said, oh, what would a bloke from Australia who lives on a cheese farm on Mull know about interior design? Which and I would think is more reason to put you on because it would just be, no, if nothing else, it would be funny. Well, yeah. Somehow got on that show as the last person cast and they really were like down to the wire and someone stood up at a meeting, I think, said, oh, this guy's got something, we should give him a go. And then the lady who runs the production company now, who made Interior Design Masters and makes Designing the Hebrides, was mm, I'm not sure. Anyway, um, it worked out all right for her. But um, I got on and I think that resilience of living in the bush and, you know, being able to travel and yeah, coming like long, commutes and long commutes and come here and being resourceful with seeing how Chris and the family made the farm and using what they have and spinning it into gold. All that stuff put me in good stead on this program to kind of go for it. Because you'd, you'd go the extra mile. Yeah. yeah. You'd drive to the other side of the country to pick up a vase that you thought might look good. Yeah. Which, so, so that that's that happened, and then I I was in it to win it, and then I won it, and so yeah. But I remember when like you were on it, I was like, I was up here, and you were down there, and you're like, I just don't want to go home first, and I'm like, oh yeah, definitely, you don't want to be the first one to go, yeah. get eliminated from the show, and and then you didn't, and you're like, oh cool, and you're like, I don't want to be the next person, and I was like, oh cool, and then I got halfway, because I don't know at the start, like I always thought, I always knew how talented you were and how creative you were. Like, I was very much, I've always been aware of that. But whether that would translate or whether you could win, like, I felt biased. But I remember at the halfway mark where, like, there was only four of you left, I'm like, oh, shit. Like, you're in it for the win. Like, you're in it for the win. Yeah. And then it was like, crap. Like, what's that look like, you know? Who, like, and then it got down to the final three and I was like, nah. And then it got down to the, the two of you, you and Amy, and I was like, well, it doesn't even matter if you went, like, now, you're there. Like, yeah. you're there. You made it to the final. That was crazy. Yeah. And then so I won it and then you win this contract, which is more work, which is 
you know, not. Yeah, that is the worst prize. It's the worst prize in history. (laughs) But in a great prize, but a worst prize. Then I got pulled into a meeting and they're like, oh, what are you going to do? And I'm like, oh, I'm just going to go back to Mull and I'm just going to be an interior designer. And then I think the people at the BBC and the production company were like, Uh, that sounds hilarious, Uh, like you could do anything and that's what you're choosing to do. And then that's when kind of Designing the Hebrides was born right after that show because they thought, oh, like this is a really interesting kind of place and it's an interesting angle to kind of use interior design to learn about people and a place. So uh, kind of that, that's where that kind of began. And then again, like um, the people of Mull, like to the rescue, like, sure, you can do it at my home. Sure, you can do it at my room. Oh, yeah, come, you, yeah, well, you can do a turret in the yeah. castle. Everyone was so, so a couple cut. of weeks, a couple of weeks late after on the show, I'm in Fiona McGuinness's living room shooting a pilot with the BBC. She, I was like, who am I going to ask to get? Who's the character? I'm like, oh, I'll ask Fi. And we're in the inner living room with the producer and she's telling me what I need to do with the hallway. And um, we made right. this. Like, so lovely. I I know. And then, yeah. and then I'm at Sally's like shooting and Sally Fisher's, um, um, okay. for the pilot. And then suddenly it gets commissioned and they're like, oh gosh, now we have to find all of these places. Yeah. So I'm just asking everyone I know, like Alexa, yeah. Tom and Marjorie, Sally, I'm like, can I do a makeover on your place? Like calling up Colin and Oliver and yeah. saying, can I do your bothy? Yeah. And everyone's like, okay, yeah, yeah sure, go for it. Like, oh, hey, Awen, can you help me yeah. do this thing? <laughs> I think that's one of the strengths of it. Yeah. Well. Obviously your your personality is a, one of the major selling points of it, but it's the team around oh, you as well. the team. Oh, Lisa. 100%. Oh, Lisa. Just the greatest. I know, Lisa. I mean, but we were tricked into it. All of I tricked everyone into it. To be fair, (laughs) no, but I had tricked Lisa into it. I had said, "Hey." Do you fancy going, um, coming with us on a bit of a jolly over to Ulva? And having a barbecue. We're having a barbecue in a bothy over the other side of Ulva. Ro will pick you up at eight. And this is when that Hurricane Ian was coming through last year. And so Tom Tom and I are over there doing up the bothy and we're waiting for Tom, uh, waiting for Ro and Lisa to arrive. And Ro and Lisa arrive on the back of a quad bike with a couple of cans in them. And um, uh, Lisa <laughs> thinks Dino. she's coming for a barbecue, um, but she gets there and I just hand her a paintbrush. I thought I was coming for a barbecue as well. We both thought we were going for a barbecue. She gets there, I hand her a paintbrush and suddenly she's my decorator on the show. (laughs) So she's come along for like a massive adventure on it and Tom and Awen, um, they're just up for the challenge and like I'd be so lost without all of them. And I think that's to me what like makes it real, like they're they're real, like and they're real people that we're making it, you you know, doing it for. It's funny like from like behind the scenes because sometimes the production company will be like, oh, get Elisa or Eamon or to do that. And they're like, oh, nah. And they're like, what? And it's like, oh, no, like they're pals. Like no one's itching to be a TV star. Like it might might be a different group of people you have down in London if in this situation. But like they're just helping bench out. So like... Yeah, they've still got, everyone's still got jobs and lives and and stuff they've got to get on with. They're just, yeah. They're they're like, they're trying to make money and Awen's running a business and Mm -hmm. Tom's working. They're doing this to help me, you know, not for fame and fortune. Um, And it comes across as well because I know I, 
like I am very hard to work for. Like I'm indecisive. I'm like I don't have a plan. But that's good drama for the programmers. Good drama, so, yeah, yeah. and you know they're the ones keeping it real. There's obviously lots more to come oh, on yeah. that front as well. And and I remember uh, when I was working with the young people in Benes and, and we came across Tayona for the day uh, yeah. and you were doing both of you were doing a piece to camera on the on the on the, oh, yeah. the slip. Mm. And uh, the kids were like, This this banjo <laughs> <laughs> And I was like, Keep your eyes down, keep moving, don't distract uh, they're on they're on well, camera. No, that was really it, was, cute. it was lovely. Nice yeah. That's next series. Mm. So we're on Iona, we're going abroad. Ooh. Harris, Iona, oh, South yes. Uest. Oh, yeah, beautiful. Yeah, South US. Now that's wild. Yeah, that's a pretty rugged place. Um, but we do a lovely little craft shop on South US next year. Ro, come to yourself. What are you doing now? What's what? What are you working on? Well, I've been working on um, for the last few years. So originally, originally when we came here, or we were looking to come back, um, it was advertised as a cheesemaker's position. Um, so I thought, oh yeah, that'd be great. I'd love that. And then. As time was getting on, you know, we were chatting and they're like, oh, well, we are doing this distillery as well. Uh, maybe you can sort of, you know, oversee, you know, both those sort of projects. And I was like, oh, yeah, cool. And then when we got here, and I think uh, we were all probably a bit naive about it, it's like what this distillery was going to take to get off the ground. Because the idea was, can we take the whey from the cheese making, ferment it, distill it and turn it into a gin or a vodka or a whiskey style drink? Um, and also at that same time, it was like COVID and Brexit. So when we arrived, storm. yeah, it was like, it was bonkers. I remember chatting to Bren going, oh yeah, we'll be coming. He's like, oh, the distillery will probably be built by then. And, and I'm like, yep, yeah, cool. And I was like, oh, I'm a bit bummed. I would have liked to be in there for the ground up. And then because of COVID and Brexit, it was like, everything went behind. So I got to work, yeah, with it from the ground up with Bren and, I was doing sort of the yeast research because um, this is going to be probably quite a boring part of your podcast, but I'm going to tell it anyway. Um, it's a special type of yeast uh, because the what you're fermenting is lactose and lactose is a more complex sugar than glucose or galactose. So brewers and bakers just use a, a pretty basic, yeah, brewer's yeast does the job. Lactose are not the case. So we had to find a few different yeasts from the National Yeast and Culture Library down in London and... Yeah, trying to grow them and try and f see if we could ferment the way. And there was a lot of trial and error. And Bren was building the distillery. Like, Bren's engineering brain is incredible. Yeah, and those particular stills, stills generally operate on steam. They're heated by steam. That's how they work. But that wasn't going to be an option for us. So Bren had spoke with the still makers and those stills had been built. And then probably halfway through, Bren drops the bombshell that he's not using steam and they're like, oh, I don't think it's possible to to do what you're trying to do. And Bren's like, oh, no, but I think if I get, you know, heat, if I had a heat exchange under pressure, I can probably get it to the temperature we need. And da, 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 da. So Bren was working away on that and I was working away like, oh, can we ferment this yeast? And I remember there was a time there I'm like, these things have got to come together because if this doesn't work, like we've both spent a lot of time trying to nut this out. And it did, but then it got to the scary point where I'd done small batch test runs and I knew that worked and Brent had done all his science and, and his engineering and he'd got it all built. And it was that moment where we almost didn't want to start because that was going to be the moment when we found out, does it really work? Can we really do this on this scale? And then, yeah, we started and it was probably about six months of 
tweaking everything and, and, and figuring out, you know, how to do things. It was a really unusual time where you would Google, you'd have a question come up, you'd have a thought and you'd Google it and there would be nothing would come back. Like no one had asked that wow. question before. <laughs> like, not even a Google one. No, you're not. Yeah. You're just like, huh, okay. Well, we can figure out what temperature this particular strain of yeast needs to be inoculated in at, I guess. Well, Bren, you can, cool. Bren's nutted out how many pipes and tubes and backwards turns he needs to be able to put the water under pressure to heat the stills. And, and then, yeah, so that was a real sort of fun. It was exciting. I think, I think we were both probably excited, sometimes tired, but to learn something new because I'd never done distilling before. I'd done a little bit of backyard sort of brewing and a little bit of just like backyard distilling, but it wasn't something I had a lot of experience in, nor microbiology. That also wasn't something I had a lot of experience in. So all of a sudden, yeah, we're learning and, and it's all come together and it's all come together pretty nicely. Like, yeah, we're super thrilled. So yeah, now, yeah, primarily my work has been in the distillery, creating this spirit, yeah, which is fantastic. Um, and to use, to use the waste was, so good. And that had been, I remember when we were here last time, Chris, we never got to meet Jeff, unfortunately he passed away. Yeah. Sometime just before we got here, not too, not too long before. And Chris was saying that, you know, that had always been on his mind. Like we've got to sort out this waste issue. Like, and they'd come up with the idea of, yeah, I think we can ferment it. And if we can ferment it, we can distill it for that to come, you know, and then Tom, he was working on it uh, for, for a bit too. And so when I came over, I sort of picked up where Tom had left off and, and then now, yeah, we've got this. Yeah. It's full circle. Full circle. Farm, yeah. It's full circle. Yeah. And I think that's so responsible and, you know, I'm sure like with any business, you, you know, you don't have to be, you don't have to be perfect, but you should always be trying to be better. Yeah. You know, like it's, it's, it takes a long time to establish your business and, and make it sustainable. And when I say sustainable, I mean financially sustainable and all of those things. And when you can, when you can do that and then you can start looking at your business and go, right, how can we make this better? And the farm operates on wind uh, turbines and water turbines and biomass boiler with regenerative forest wood, uh, wood chips and to, to, yeah, all of those things. It's just such a beautiful place to work, to be, to be a part of like a workplace that does consider the, the impact or the imprint that they're leaving and, and how they can reduce that. And it's also beneficial, don't get me wrong, like the cost of power to be producing. We, uh, the skipper can produce 1.5 times the amount of energy it needs. Wow. Yeah, we can't, can't always access it when we need it, but we can take it off the grid and then put it back on the grid and, and, and to power this home, Chris's home, Tom's home. John Dorn's home, uh, Sheila's home, Garth's home, all the cottages, the, the chief's like, like how cool is that? It's amazing. Like, and to have that foresight and that vision that Jeff had to like put some of these things in place, like the hydro early on in the day and then follow it up by wind power and now deal with the waste issue and yeah. It's, good. it's a magic place. Okay. Yeah, it's cool. It's like, what a great job. Look like, yeah. what a great thing to be a part of. How lucky you are. Yeah. Uh, if I was to ask you one thing, what has Mole meant to you? Oh. Ooh. Sorry, I was looking for a quick answer. Lots. Thank you. Bye-bye. No. Yeah. <laughs> what, yeah. What has Mole meant to you? I think it's, for me, personally, it's home. Yeah. Like, which is such, I know it's an odd thing because 
people that have grown up here, you know, it is their home and they feel their home and they have the stories and the history and the connection. Like, but for me, it just, honestly, it just feels like home. It just feels like where I belong and what I should be a part of. Yeah. But yeah, I think all roads lead here and will always like lead back here for us. Cause it's like, I never, I never quite felt at home where I grew up. Yeah, nor did I. And so suddenly we're somewhere that we've made a home together. We've been embraced by so many people and you know, we're on a crazy journey now and it's weird. all, it's, so weird. Of, it's all thanks to this place. Like this, you know, weird little island. Yeah. If we didn't come like here, we wouldn't characters. be doing these yeah. amazing things. And it's like, you don't have to be in a city like to actually, you know, get all these amazing opportunities. Like yeah. we came to Mull and that's where it kind of begun for us. So it's, yeah, it's a special place. Yeah. Oh, yeah. amazing. Yeah. Just really grateful to be a part of it. Yeah. Oh, what an ending. Merry Christmas. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much, Ro. Thank you so much, Banjo. It was an absolute delight to get to spend time chatting with you both. Thanks also to Grandpa. What a very fine beast he is indeed. I look forward to catching up with you all again soon. There's so much in this episode to follow up on. So if you want to have a look at our website on whatwedointhewinter.com, you'll find links from lots of the topics we explored. If you're wanting to donate to help towards Banjo and Rose's work in Nepal, please send an email to ahoy at banjobeal.co.uk, which is A-H-O-Y at B-A-N-J-O-B-E-A-L-E.co.uk, and you'll be pointed in the right direction. If you're a new listener and you wanted to subscribe to this podcast, you're more than welcome. It'd be lovely to have you along for the ride. Right, that's enough waffle from me. It's Christmas time, so away off with you and enjoy your sprouts. And don't forget the king of all foodstuffs, the roast potato. Thanks for listening. See you again next time. Take care, whatever you are. Happy Christmas to you. Not the creel, wee villa. Shenakaveh.